we have come as far, really, as verse 41. Those of you who have been studying and reading along with us, Peter preaching the first sermon there on the day of Pentecost, filled with the Holy Spirit, not mincing words, not trying to do any fancy schmancy thing to try to warm the crowd up, just with the Spirit proclaiming the truth. And then it says they were pierced in their hearts. The same word used when Christ's Christ's hands were pierced on the cross, side was pierced. So it says their hearts were pierced when they realized the one that they had pierced. And then it says they they cried out, what must we do? Because by that time they realized what they had done, and you have to realize what you have done to ask what you must do. And then, you know, Peter says you need to repent. You need to repent. You need to turn. He says you need to repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, Because of the remission of sins, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and unto your children, very Jewish context there. But it goes on to say, and to all that are afar off, that's us, no doubt to our children as well, even as many as the Lord our God shall call, and with many other words did he testify and exhort saying save yourselves from this untoward generation again be saved he's not telling them to do something they're being saved by faith but he says be saved and let and turn from this again untoward generation there there may be better greek words to describe that but i kind of like that the, the generation we're living is is untoward Jesus. He's saying, turn from the generation that's not toward him, toward him. You know, turn from this untoward generation, he says. Then, you want to take note of verse 41, they gladly received the word, his word, they were baptized. So, This is important because it's going to play into the picture that we move into this evening. It says they gladly received. Literally, the idea is they welcomed. It's the Greek phrase that's used for welcoming someone, welcoming something. They welcomed the word of God because they had come under conviction. They realized how lost they were. And then Peter says, well, here's the way. There are promises to you. There, you know, God's grace is there. You can turn. You can be saved. And it says, as they heard that, they welcomed the word of God. No doubt they were hanging on every word. Peter says, you know, this, Paul said, this thing isn't done in a corner. Peter said, you know, he was proven among you to be this man with signs and wonders, as you all know. And, and now they're under tremendous conviction about their sin And as he tells them about forgiveness and repentance and so forth and the promise of the Spirit, it says that they're welcoming that. They're welcoming it. It's it's different than the law, which would have condemned them. They're welcoming this word of God's grace, it says, and they were baptized. And then it says, in the same day, there was added unto them about 3,000 
souls. That's speaking about individuals. That's men, women, children who were there that heard, that were understanding of that age of reason. They could do that. 3,000. We're going to read about 5,000. We move on. 10,000. Again, they say within 40 years, by the time Jerusalem's destroyed in 70 AD, there were 100,000 believers, minimum. In Jerusalem. So you can imagine this moving of the Spirit. And you look around and you think, Lord, please, Lord, here we are in these last days. You know, either blow the trumpet and get us out of here, either up or down, one or the other, or pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. Either come down or take us up. One or the, it's, it's frustration for us to stay here in the energy of our flesh. We need another Pentecost that we're going to be here because the generation around us is lost. And without the Holy Spirit, they're not going to be pierced in their hearts. They're not going to hear what they need to hear. In this picture here, now 3,000 souls are added in one day to them. Now, it's a picture of the church, obviously. Um, what do you do? You know, you, you have a Bible study, 120 people. It's wonderful. And by the afternoon, you got 3,000 people. And they were all baptized. That's a lot of Duncan. You know, those of you who were at the baptism last Saturday, 100-some people are baptized. It takes all afternoon to do that. How do you baptize 3,000 people? You know, I remember days down at Pirate's Cove with Chuck Smith. They would baptize 700, 800. They've had teams of pastors that would go on all day long. You know, it was remarkable. But what do they do here with 3,000? There's no river. There's no Pirate's Cove. There's no ocean here. You know, there's, you know this is probably much like John the Baptist. We are used to immersion when we think about baptism, going under our whole body, then coming up to newness of life. But the word also meant pouring, you know, and it may be that they, they, they were going from person to person, pouring the water on their head. I don't know where they'd get a stream big enough and enough people to baptize. You know, you figure if 120 of them and if 50 of them were men or 60 of them and uh, were involved in ministry in some way, how long does it take, uh, you know, 20 teams to baptize 3,000 people? So it's an incredible picture. We don't think about the logistics, you know, and what went on there. But 3,000 of them are saved, baptized. And I'm sure the apostles are kind of meeting. They're, you know, they're doing a huddle saying, what in the world do we do now, you know? Um, Jesus had given them the great commission about going into the world, you know, preaching gospel and so forth. And then he said, baptize them and teach them to obey all things that I have commanded you. So it, he didn't say just go make converts. You know, that wasn't the issue. Yes, you want to see them converted, baptized. But the process of discipling then is teaching them to obey all things that I have commanded you. And we see that as we move into verse 42, it gives us four things that were really central ingredients in this New Testament. The first generation of the church filled with the Spirit, led by the apostles. It says they abode steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in the breaking of bread and of prayers. Those four things, essential. 
And, and as you go through and look at that, you figure, okay, what's not here? There's nothing about social media. There's nothing about publication. There's nothing about radio. There's nothing about, you know, all of the things we might think are necessary here. No, there's none of that here. Uh, it is Jesus. It's going to say in verse 47 that Jesus added to the church daily such as should be saved. So if Jesus is adding, then everybody who's added is added to Jesus. If anybody else is adding, it's a mess and it don't mean anything. Because you go through this text and you realize the apostles' doctrine was about Jesus. The fellowship was around Jesus. The breaking of bread was remembering Jesus. And the prayers were to Jesus. This is a group of guys that walked with him for three years. They had been with him then for 40 days, you know, in the resurrected form, hearing about the kingdom. There was a, you know, a passion in their hearts. They loved this person, Jesus Christ. They were amazed as they found out who he was. You know, they were overwhelmed. Peter, who's speaking, had denied him and heard the rooster crow, and Christ came to him. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath begotten us again unto a living hope by the resurrection from the dead. You know, he says, it changed my life when he came to me. So they have a risen Savior. You know, this is first generation. This is what Pentecost is. Whenever it happens in the history of the church, it's all about Jesus. It's all about relationship it's people that are touched by the risen Savior. And the Holy Spirit, as he falls, he makes that real. Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes, he will not speak of himself, but he will take the things that belong to me, and he will make those things known to you. So if you go to a Holy Ghost meeting, the Holy Ghost ain't there. He said he won't talk about himself. If you go to a Jesus meeting, the Holy Ghost is there, and he's working. And here it's very interesting to look at these components that were the fiber and the health and the ingredients of church life, these 3,000. It says they abode steadfastly. That's actually one word in the Greek, and it speaks of continuance. It's, it's in the form that's here. It's active. This is something they did. Well, it tells us. That's why it's so important to realize they welcomed the Word of God. Now they've been baptized, they're brand new babes in Christ, they're hungry, and the apostles are there teaching them about this one who they accepted that they had walked with, and their minds are blown. Again, when Pentecost comes and there's revival, it's, it's objective, and you want to have an objective theology, you know, you want that. You want to know why you believe what you believe. But this was also subjective. They were experiencing his presence. They were amazed with his presence. You know, they had been pricked in their hearts. You know, they, they had cried, what must we do? And then the word of God came to them and they welcomed it. It was alive to them. And so you have this whole church that's stirred. And it says they themselves are continuing. They're determined. They're abiding steadfastly. You, you think, do Christians do that today? What do we abide steadfastly in? They say most people, including Christians, spend more time on their mobile device than they do doing anything else now. The average person in America, they say, watches TV four to five hours a day. What do we abide steadfastly in? It's, it's a challenge and I'm not just preaching to you, I'm preaching to, to Pastor Joe as well, trust me. 
I'm, I'm revisiting this. It's wonderful. I'm looking at it. They abode steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Now, people will say, well, that's just teaching. You know, that what it says there is, a, is it, and it is, you know, um, that it's the word of God. The word of God, we believe, is inerrant. It's inspired. It's infallible. We believe Satan attacked it right from Genesis 3. Half God said, you go through the scripture and you hear the scripture save itself. Don't add to the word of God. In fact, it says in Deuteronomy, don't even diminish. Don't take a little bit away from it. Pharisees and Sadducees, by Jesus' day, the Pharisees were those who were adding to the word of God, all of their ritual, all of their rules. The Sadducees were taking away from the word of God, believing in the first five books of Moses, but not in resurrection, not in angels, not in spirits, and so forth. And you have those warnings all the way through the New Testament about adding or taking away from the word until the book of Revelation ends the Bible saying, cursed is anyone who adds to the words of the prophecy of this book, Curses anyone who takes away from the prophecy of the words of this book. You know, you go through that. And of course, you and I know all the way through. But understand here, as these men are preaching the doctrine of Christ, the apostles' doctrine, they have an Old Testament. And it isn't just doctrine, because the Jews had lots of doctrine about marriage, about child raising, about festivals and feasts, about tithing and so forth. They had all kinds of doctrine. But it doesn't just say they abode steadfastly in doctrine here. It says they abode steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. There was teaching that was coming to them every day about this resurrected Savior, this one who had been born in Bethlehem of Judea, you know, and fulfilled the prophecy, out of thee, O Bethlehem, shall come him who is to be, you know, rule all nations forever. They had, you know, th they're telling him about this one who, would wa who had walked among them and done signs and wonders, opening the eyes of the blind, unstopping ears of the cleansing lepers, raising the dead, Peter, rebuking the wind and the sea, or saying to Peter, come on, get out of the boat and come to me. They're telling them about this one who had went to the cross. We heard him crying, Abba, if there's any other way. But if not, I'll drink this cup. And remember the night that he was taken, beaten beyond human recognition. His beard was ripped out of his face. They spit on him. Peter's denying, I don't know him. The whole process then of the, the scourging, the crucifixion, the disciples fleeing. And then the empty tomb, Peter and John, hearing from Mary Magdalene, running there. And then Christ appearing to them, to Peter, to the two on the road to Emmaus, and, and so forth, coming and standing in the room with them. And knowing then that their sins were forgiven. And what they did every day is they reinforced in the lives of the church the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look, we right now are in a culture that is antagonistic towards the very central. Not just that we would argue what marriage is or that we would argue that creation took place. It wasn't evolution. You think of all the other things you might hit on. We have come to a time where they're antagonistic to anyone who says Jesus is the only way to be saved. 
They're saying now that you and I are the danger to the culture and society and to globalism because of how narrow we are. That's surrounding us now. So it's interesting to see, you know, the baton that's been handed to us through the centuries is the doctrine that the apostles preached about Jesus Christ. It hasn't changed. It's as powerful now as it's ever been. It's as valuable now as it's ever been. In my personal life, it's more valuable now than it's ever been. A couple of reasons. One is I'm over 70 years old now, so it becomes more important than I'm sure what I believe. But just look at the world that we're in. Look what's going on around us. And there's no hope. There's no hope. But there is hope. There's an empty tomb in Jerusalem. This Lamb of God died for our sins, and he paid the price of it in his own blood. So this apostle's doctrine is about Jesus. And, and, and you know, Alistair begs a friend, he said, Joe, I preach the gospel to myself every day. I preach the gospel to myself every day because he understands his fallen nature as, as we, we all have to deal with the traitor within. He understands God except for your grace. There go I. I could, you know, he, he, underst he understands. And how valuable is the gospel to us every day? You know, in, in Israel before Christ came, in the sacrificial system, there was the morning and evening sacrifice. Every day began with a lamb being slaughtered. Every day ended with a lamb being slaughtered. And I think in my life how important it is every day to begin the day with a lamb who poured out his blood for my sins. And at the end of every day, when I probably have some things to confess by then, to do it to the lamb that had poured out his blood for my sins. How wonderful to still keep, as it were, you know, the apostles talking in the morning and evening sacrifice, the Passover, what had taken place, and the blood of the lamb on the lentils and the doorposts and so forth. They abode steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, and they were drawing all these lessons from Isaiah 53 and Zechariah 12 and Psalm 22. You know, those were the things they had to build on. The New Testament wasn't written yet. So it says this crowd, these 3,000 that came, and no doubt they were meeting in the temple precincts. We're going to find that out because there was no, you know, they didn't have a place big enough for them to, to meet, obviously. And there's still a Jewish sect. Even the Jews didn't know what to do with them at this point. They were still considered part of Judaism in some way. So it was very Jewish in, in a sense. And no doubt meeting there in the portico in the temple, probably in the court of the Gentiles, there are huge areas where different people could gather. Uh, I was on the Temple Mount uh, years ago on the first day of Ramadan, and there were 60,000 Muslims on the Temple Mount at one time. 60,000. So you can imagine here, these 3,000, they, they found a place where they were comfortable. They, they listened, you know, to the apostles. We don't know if they broke them up in groups and talked to them. But, but you know, the, the apostles' doctrine, what they were teaching about Jesus, this Savior, this risen one, that was an important part of what took place. Secondly, it says the fellowship. Fellowship. It's koinonia. It is having things in common. It is our common ground. It is, you know, being together, as Paul says, every joint 
every ligament supplies. It, it wasn't an option. They gathered every day. Now it's going to say publicly and house to house. But church wasn't an option. It was, it, they were so enthralled and they were so hungry for Jesus, for his presence, for the doctrine about him, that every day a normal part of their lives was koinonia. They were with other Christians. I encourage you guys, you know, home fellowships, small groups. The, the church really is built around those things in many ways, you know. Uh, junior high, senior high, you know, young adults, the women's ministry, the church. There's all kinds of home groups, and those are very important. You know, who knows before this is all over, we're driven out of here back to the homes, you know. Who knows? But, you know, fellowship, koinonia, having things in common. And, of course, if, if the greatest thing that we have in common is Jesus Christ, why wouldn't we want to share that with one another? Why wouldn't we want to sit with one another and talk about the Lord and look into his word? So these are essential qualities of the first century church. Abiding in the apostles' doctrine. Then it says koinonia, fellowship. And that was around the risen one, about the risen one, around the risen one. And then it says the breaking of bread... And, and look, that certainly points us to the Lord's Supper. But understand in this context, the Lord's Supper was normally celebrated at the end of, of a meal. When people got together, they fellowshiped, they ate together, they invited one another. And certainly Christians were doing that because there was some hostility. The Romans were in charge. There was no First Amendment rights, no Second Amendment rights. There was none of that. And yet it says in Galatians, this was the perfect time for God to send his son into the world in the fullness of times. There was the Greek language. There were Roman roads. God knew the gospel was going to spread. And these people met in their homes. And they ate together. They broke bread. Very important in this culture to break bread together. And they did that. And then at the end of the meal, they would always take the Lord's Supper that would be added to the meal. So they did this remembering him. They, they were in the word about him. They were fellowshipping around him. They were breaking bread, remembering him. You know, Paul says... You know, I wasn't there at that Last Supper, but probably in Arabia, he tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, that the Lord came to me. I've only delivered to you what the Lord's given me. But they're emphatic there. The Lord himself, he says. In Galatians, he tells us he didn't receive the gospel from man, but he received it from Christ himself. And he tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, he said it was the Lord himself, and he gave this ordinance to me for myself. He's amazed that, you know, one who had, you know, held men and women in the prison and made people blaspheming the name of Jesus, he said it was he himself. And he came to me for myself, and he told me what he did on that night, how he broke the bread. And he gave the cup. And he said, you know, as, as often as you do this, you do show forth the Lord's death until he comes. He said, Paul, have him do this in remembrance of me. This is my table. So you just think how remarkable, you know, this was in the early church. And how many of these, besides the 120, how many of the 3,000 had heard him? 
How many had heard him arguing with the Pharisees and Sadducees in the temple courts? They had come up to the Passover from all over the world. How many of these were foreigners that didn't go back to their, their, their homes, who got saved, who had their minds blown, and just who stayed there, and they ended up moving in with other believers? The, you know, how we, the picture really is incredible here as we look at it. And then it says in the other normal part, so teaching, normal part of the church life, mandatory, necessary. Fellowship, koinonia. You know, there's no lone, lone rangers in the early church. Everybody was with one another, important, because health happens there, medicine happens there. We, we, every joint ligament supplies. Then there was the breaking of bread, you know, hospitality, community, and then remembering the Lord and the Lord's Supper. And then it says prayer. You know, that was to the Lord, about the Lord, around the Lord, remembering the Lord, and then prayer to the Lord. And imagine what these prayers were like in this early church. You know, just imagine because, you know, the, the, again, you, you have groups of people who had, who had heard him had walked with him, had seen the miracles. You know, he appeared to 500 at one time. How many are in this, you know, here ministering these 3,000 that had seen the risen Christ? Just imagine what the prayers were like when they gathered and they began to pray. You know, it's going to tell us down in the next chapter, Peter and John are going into the temple at the time of prayer. I think it's important for us to remember, you know, there's private prayer, and there's public prayer. You know, what's your prayer? That's not your public prayer. What's your prayer? What's your passion? What's your prayer? You know, public prayer, you don't want to get up and then at the end of the sermon repeat the five points you made in your sermon just to make sure everybody knows. You know, at the end of it, you really want real prayer to take place. When we gather publicly on Sunday night to pray, we want real prayer to be taking place. But public prayer is born out of private prayer. Private prayer is the seedbed for public prayer. Nobody's going to come to public prayer on Sunday night when they can be watching the Sixers or something else unless they're in private prayer and the Holy Spirit is telling them, you need to go pray with the church. My body is gathering. I'm coming for my bride. You need to be in prayer. So private prayer is always the environment that points us to public prayer and makes our time of public prayer what it should be. But each one of us, what is your prayer? When you're alone with him, what is your prayer? Is it for ministry? Is it for your spouse? Do you have a child you know, with disease or illness, with some congenital condition? Uh, are you praying for the people you work with? What's your burden? What is your prayer? Each one of us in our own lives should have something that, that's our prayer. Not just that we pray about, and we should do that constantly. But what is our prayer, you know? Tozier said, pray until you know that you're praying. Then pray until you know you're being heard. Then pray until your prayers are answered. Those were his three rules. Pray until you realize, okay, I'm praying. Not, I'm here, I'm praying. Pray until 
you, you know, you know, okay, Lord, you're hearing. Pray until you know you're being heard. And then pray until your prayers are answered. You know, Criswell said that the Lord said to him, give me my mornings. Give me my mornings. Meet with me early. The phone's not ringing then. There's less interruptions then. The day is fresh. Hear from me before you hear from others. What's your prayer? What's your prayer life? Because public prayer is born out of private prayer. And it just seems like public and private prayer were just a huge part of this early church. They understood they were gathered around a risen Savior. And just think of what's not here. All the methods, you know, all of the things they tell you is necessary for church growth. I feel bad for young pastors in one sense because they have the Internet now. Again, and they go on and they look at the most crowded rooms they can find. All right, this is cool, and that's cool. Look what they're doing. He's got those $2,000 sneakers. I need some of them, you know. And look at this. i got to get a pierced ear. You know, look at their graphics. They're out, you know, they're out of sight. Look at the rear screen projection. And I think during the worship, the smoke, you know, it's not overwhelming, but it just gives you that awe of spirituality, you know. And then everybody leaves, and they think, oh, I feel so good. That was wonderful. That's not what worship is about. We're supposed to leave, and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are supposed to look at each other and say, oh, that was awesome. I feel wonderful. My kids were here. It was worship. It was real. You know, you think of all of the things that are kind of washing over the church, particularly the younger church, about what you need to have and how you need to do it and what will make it successful and what doesn't. No, the Bible says this, abiding steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. The teaching that you receive constantly needs to be about Jesus. He is the word that became flesh. Secondly, the thing that needs to be there is fellowship, koinonia. Christians need each other. There's no, there's, there's no you know, lone rangers in the church. God's call us. Yeah, there's times when he might take John the Baptist to the wilderness. He may take John to the Isle of Patmos. He may take Paul to Arabia. There's sanctified loneliness, but God doesn't need to take you away to do that. You can sit here in a room full of people and feel completely lonely. You ever done that? You sit in a room full of people. That's God can give sanctified loneliness to you in the middle of a party where everybody's making all this noise, and you just feel here I am, you know. So, so I think that's important. There's, you know, there's the doctrine about Christ. Then there's the fellowship. Yeah, he can get you alone if he wants to, but but he prescribes in his word how desperately we need one another, and the church can't function without one another. And the church is the ecclesia, the called out ones. We've been called out of the world into a different culture, into a different family. And I'm so thankful. And then he says, of course, there's the breaking of bread. Wonderful part of that. I love, um, I'm a, I basically a seafood diet. Any food I can see, I can eat. You know, but it's just wonderful to be with Christians, to break bread. And, and then to sit, you know, and... Let that be centered around the Lord, was having communion at the end of the meal, sitting in the living room having communion. Uh, I love when I'm with the the guys on staff and we just have communion together. It's quiet. Uh, 
great, that's a great thing. And then prayers, prayers. He has to be real to us. He has to be. And all the other schmaltz, you know, is not what the church is built on. I, I appreciate the fact, you know, that Jim Cimbala a few years ago wrote that book, Storm. And he said, you know, the church never moves forward without falling back. He said, it's only when the church falls back on the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit that it ever moves forward. You know, and here, wonderfully, I think we're given a picture here of the early church. They continued steadfastly. There's a continuance in this, and they're part of that. In the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in breaking of bread and of prayers, and fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done. Now, King James says, by the apostles. The Greek says, many, literally says, and through the apostles were signs and wonders done. Weren't done by them. The apostles weren't doing the signs and wonders. The signs and wonders were being done through them by the Holy Spirit. It's interesting because it's different with Jesus. Jesus himself did the signs and wonders. He was a member of the Trinity. You know, he, he exercised supernatural power. It was he in those circumstances that opened the eyes of the blind that cleansed lepers. Here, it says the miracles are happening through, not by, through the apostles. Anything happens, you know, and sometimes you see, you know, Sadly, guys on TV, you know, whether they're swinging their sports jackets around, knocking people down, whatever they're doing, and you think like they're tight, they're touching the glory. Billy Graham said, "We're never more like Satan than when we touch the glory." You know, uh, here it says signs and wonders, and these guys know they had walked with them, they had failed, they had fled. They're the recipients of God's grace. That's why they could preach to others about God's grace. My pastor Chuck used to tell me, Joe. Grace received becomes grace bestowed. And it's when we really know what we are and how desperately in our own lives we need God's grace that then it's a reality we can give to others. So these men are serving. Miracles are happening through them, it says. People are amazed at that, and there's fear, there's awe. And all that believed were together, and now they had all things in common. You think, how many remained after Pentecost that would have gone back to their homes? What needs were there all of a sudden with this church with 3,000 people? And it says here, part of, now it's describing part of that koinonia, that fellowship. It says, all that believed were together. They had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. Now look, we are never more like Jesus, obviously, than we're giving. When we're giving, we're particularly taking care of somebody that's in need, and, and we're reflecting our Savior when we do that, no doubt. There isn't anything that requires you to sell what you have and give it away. Uh, in, in Acts chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira come and pretend that they had sold something and given everything to the Lord before the Lord strikes them dead, Peter says it wasn't required. 
You don't require. You don't have to do this. You don't have to act like you're doing something that you're not. Here, this this passion of the early church, no doubt, you know, the apostles are also sharing. Hey, we were with him when he floated away, and the angels came and said, "This same Jesus that you saw go, he's coming again." And no doubt, this early church as they're abiding in the doctrine of Christ, part of that doctrine was his return. He's coming soon, the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Paul believed in that. He said, then we which are alive shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. He used the personal pronoun, included himself. Paul said to the single man in 1 Corinthians 7, look, guys, uh, I would spare you. This is not the Lord, but it's my own opinion. If you guys will stay single, you have more time to serve the Lord. If you get married, you got to worry about the stuff your wife wants. If you stay single, you can serve the Lord. Now, that was obviously his opinion, because if everybody had listened to that in the first century, the church would have died out in the first century. You know, but you know, the idea was in that statement, he had expectancy that the Lord return in his own life. He challenged. Timothy to do certain things, he says, while you're waiting for the Lord to return. So there was that air of expectancy. This early church is excited. They're passionate. They're looking at one another. They're seeing people that have come from other lands, you know, staying there. How can we be part of this and so forth? And of course, they're selling things. They're giving away. Look, communism, this is not communism. Socialism and communism are the same thing. Socialism doesn't work because it's only a while before you run out of other people's money. That's why socialism doesn't work. But communism says this. Communism says, what's yours is mine. I don't care if you work for it. I don't care if you went to school. I don't care how much you sweated for it. What's yours is mine. That's communism. Capitalism is, oh no, what's mine is mine. I worked for it. I did this. I, you know, what's mine is mine. That's capitalism. Christianity is what's mine is yours. Communism, what's yours is mine. Capitalism, what's mine is mine. Christianity, what's mine is yours. To take care of someone in the hospital. To write somebody a letter when you know they're broken down. To get to the funeral and say, can I get a meal? You know, it's, it's that giving that's so healthy. And there's a picture of that here. That church was like that. Now look, something else comes here. It's kind of interesting. In the years past this, there's a drought that comes. And the church in Jerusalem ends up in a difficult financial situation. And what happens is by then, Saul of Tarsus is saved. Paul is traveling, and he's taken up an offering from the Gentile churches to give to the church in Jerusalem. And it builds the bridge between the Gentile churches and the Jewish church, who had been very critical of the Gentiles being saved. And God will use this. Right now, no doubt he's pleased. He's not demanding this, but they're so giving, they're giving anything away, the Lord doesn't come as soon as they think, and they're kind of left in a lurch when difficult times hit that part of the world. But then the the Gentile church stands up and sells what they have and gives their resources to get back to the mother church, this church they know that had been so responsible for the blessings in their life, and God used that in a wonderful way. 
So it says, they sold their possessions and goods. They parted them to all men as every man had need. And they continued daily. Now here's our one accord. You want to just follow that phrase through the book of Acts. It's wonderful to see it over and over. They continued daily with one accord. We're not hearing about discord but one accord, wonderful, says this, in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, because they couldn't have the Lord's Supper in the temple precincts. So it says that they're every day in the temple. That was what they understood. That was a place where they could gather the 3,000 and those that were being added. And there was enough room there for the apostles to speak for them to pray for those that were sick and so forth. It was a great time to come together and find out, ah, this person, they don't have, you know, they, 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 you know, they, they left uh, the area of Tarsus where Paul's from and they're here now. And they said, we're staying. We've, you know, Christ has changed our lives. We have, this is our home. There's no, you know, the, the place where they met and talked about how do we give to them? How do we support them? So it says they were daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread, notice, from house to house. And they did eat their meat, their food, with gladness. King James says singleness of heart is simplicity in the Greek of heart. It says they ate, they broke bread, just with gladness and simplicity of heart. There's a rejoicing. You know, they're gathering, they're breaking bread, they're sharing with one another, they're taking the Lord's Supper together. It's daily. You know, it's wonderful, really, to see what goes on around here. The, the church here is so busy that I have to read the bulletin to see what's going on. And it's just wonderful to see, you know, people here Sunday morning, Sunday night, the, the prayer, as we pray together. Monday nights, there's all kinds of things going on in this building. Tuesday morning, Jerry's study. Tuesday night, there's married couple things and grieving fellowships. And Wednesday night, we're here studying Thursdays, Friday, Saturday, there's all kinds of youth things that go on and baptisms and there's weddings and, you know, it's just a beehive. There's stuff going on all the time and it's wonderful. And to me, it's wonderful to be part of a church family. Grew up in a system. My dad was Catholic. My mom was Lutheran. Neither one of those places were the priests or the pastor born again. It was... Traditional, it was liturgical, it was anesthetizing. I'm very hard to stay awake. Uh, you know, and you're a kid, you're thinking, what am I doing? I mean, my mom and dad are sitting at home, why am I here? If this was so great, they'd be here, and they're making me go, you know, just, you know. Um, how wonderful to be part of a church. I remember getting saved and coming to the church on Christmas Eve singing the same carols. I had sung for years, a lot of times drunk, just getting into the church to get out of the cold. And then you're singing those words, thinking, I sung this for years. This is incredible. You know, these words of Silent Night and, you know, all of these things about the Savior and about his love. And you're singing, and, and it all comes to life. And I think we're so fortunate to be in a place where we can meet, you know, corporately in the temple from day to day, different things, in different homes people are meeting. We hear the stuff that's going on. It's healthy. 
It's necessary. It's a picture here of the early church. And it says they're eating with gladness and simplicity of heart. How wonderful. Seeing, I, I, I love to say grace. It's one of my favorite prayers. Praising God and having favor with all the people. God was gracious early on. You know, the hostility will come both within and out. But, but this God is gracious, this baby church right now. It says that they're having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Wasn't the program, wasn't the structure of the church. The one who does that work is strictly the Lord himself. He's the one who adds to the church. If he doesn't add, you ain't added to him. And if you're added to him, you're added to the church. The church is his body. We find that out in chapter 9. You know, the church, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? when he's persecuting the church. So the church is the body of Christ. What a wonderful thing. They watched it. It was not an organization. It was an organism. You know, it was organic. It was happening because there was genuine life. Things were changing. And the Lord had said that. Wait till you're endued with power that you can be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of that earth, of the earth. That speaks of reproduction. And wherever there's reproduction, there's life. You know, the, the church is growing because the Lord's there. Look, my pastor used to say, healthy sheep reproduce. Shepherds don't beget sheep. Sheep beget sheep. Pastors don't have sheep. Sheep have sheep. And if they're fed and they're healthy, they reproduce by themselves. I remember one time we were, we were standing in the shepherd's fields in Bethlehem. And they had these tin feeding troughs there. These Arab shepherds were there. And uh, and there was this other pastor there and a couple of his folks. They recognized Chuck and they were talking. What's the secret to, you know, we know that your church has grown in these Calvary chapels. And, what's, and as they're asking him, the shepherd comes over and he's throwing grain, barley or whatever it was, in these metal troughs. And the sheep are hearing it. And they're running from all over to be the first one there, you know. And they're saying, Chuck, what's the secret? He said, free food. <laughs> free food. Feed them. They come, you know. So it's just wonderful to see this early church with these things going on. And then the Lord being the one who's adding. He's doing the work. All praise and all glory belongs to him. Now. This first incident, a picture of the miracles that were taking place, is very interesting. Um, chapter 3 says, Now Peter and John went up together into the temple, notice, at the hour of prayer, that being the ninth hour. So Peter and John, these guys are opposites. You know, it's so interesting, so often opposites attract. These guys are good for each other. These guys ran to the tomb early on resurrection morning together. You know, these guys were out fishing in the Sea of Galilee when the Lord appeared on the shore. You know, these guys have some wonderful common ground. These are the guys, you know, the Lord said to Peter, you know, in John 21, you know, at the end of your life, someone's going to take you where you don't want to go. And then they're going to stretch out your hands. And Peter said, yeah, what about this guy? And he points to John. And the Lord said to him, don't worry about him. Worry about yourself. What if I, what if it's my will for him to tarry till I come, you know? So, you know, Peter and John, here they are together. Peter had failed. No doubt John had ministered to him and helped him to get back on his feet again. 
and and he's in that place of being filled with the Spirit, and the church is recognizing his leadership. And here are two of the apostles, Peter and John. And as they're going up to the temple, that was what they knew, that was their meeting place, and it's at the hour of prayer, it says, which was three in the afternoon at this point in time. That was when the evening sacrifice took place. They prayed for a half an hour after that sacrifice. He's going up there, Peter and John, to the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, so is congenital, he was born crippled. A certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, of course, that goes without saying, whom they laid daily, this was his routine, they laid him daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask for alms of them that entered into the temple. So this this guy tells us in chapter 4, um, let me see, 22, it says, because he was healed, and they're, they're dealing with the religious leader, it says, the man was above 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was shown. So this guy's over 40. He was born crippled. He's never known what it is to walk. And they come evidently daily, it says, somebody, family, we don't know whether it's just Jews doing good deeds they believed helping the poor really got them kudos with Jehovah, you know. So they lay him at this gate, beautiful. Now, um, Josephus tells us there were several gates, but this is the gate in the court of the Gentiles that leads into the court of women, which led then into the court of Israel, then into the court of the priests. Josephus tells us the gate had two gates that opened up. Each one of those doors on that gate, each one of those two doors was 22 and a half foot wide, and they were 45 foot high. So two gates, 22 and a half foot, make 45 foot, so it was a perfect square. It was 45 foot high, and the gate itself 45 foot wide, with these two huge gates. There were 70-foot gates inside. These were huge gates. They were Corinthian gates, they were called, because of the Corinthian bronze on them. They were called beautiful because this Corinthian bronze that the gates were made of was overlaid in some places with silver and other places with pure gold. And they said they were the most expensive gates in the land, not because there weren't other gates that were all gold, but because of the workmanship. Evidently, it was shocking. It was incredible. And it was the entrance into the court of women, which then the men would go past that into the court of Israel, and he would be laid there every day. Because people going in to seek the Lord, how do you walk by a crippled guy, you know? And and he had a rep. They all knew who he was. He probably had regular contributors that he knew who they were. You know, the the crippled and the lame and the blind particularly understood whenever there was a a feast, this is Pentecost, that it was good begging then because the crowds would come, particularly the mandatory feast, and, you know, you, how do you walk by somebody who's blind or crippled, you know, and not give to them if you're going to the temple to ask the Lord for, you know, to be benevolent and kind to you. So they would lay there. There's some interesting things about this guy. 
he may have heard Jesus arguing with the Pharisees and Sadducees in the temple courts. He may have been there when Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers, which were in the court of the Gentiles where he's laying. He may have been familiar with Jesus. And no doubt Jesus had walked by him many times and not looked at him and not reached out his hand and not healed him. This is maybe a man who's saying, oh, yeah, 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 Yeshua, the healer, big deal. The prophet from Nazareth never did anything for me. And he's laying there. He's a picture of all mankind, you know, with a congenital problem, born crippled, all of us, looking for somebody to carry us somewhere, begging, needing healing. He's a picture of the conundrum, the problem of mankind, certainly. Peter, John, they're going up the hour of prayer. Here's this guy laying there begging at this beautiful gate, who's seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple area, asked alms. He wants them to give alms to him, money for the poor. Peter... Fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. You know, the guy's, eh, arms for the poor, arms for the poor. Then all of a sudden he hears, Hey, yo, look at me. You know, and Peter's standing there. There must have been others going by. And he gave heed unto them. He looks up at them. It says, Expecting to receive something. Boy, was, was he not expecting to receive what he was going to receive? And it says, he gave heed to them, expecting to receive something of them. Then it says, Peter said, silver and gold have I none. The guy must have thought, bummer. He's going to realize in a few minutes, it's the best thing in the world they didn't have silver or gold. Because if I'd have gotten that, I'd have gotten way less. Isn't it interesting? Silver and gold have I not. I don't have $3,000 sneakers for preachers. I didn't drive up here in a Mercedes. You know, I know silver, and this is an apostle. Silver and gold have I none, Peter says. But doesn't mean that I don't want to give. Such as I have, give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I think it's the first time we have Jesus Christ together here as we're moving through. Now look, by the way, there's as much power in his name today as there was then. He's the one who does the miracles through individuals. We certainly have questions. Lord, why don't you do it more? I mean, we have children in our church with cancer. You know, wives. We have people... With, with chronic illness and terminal illness. And, and sometimes we think, Lord, you know, we pray for them. Why aren't you healing? Why aren't you... We do. We think those things. But he does sometimes. He doesn't all the time. But he does sometimes. We've seen it. We've seen it here. He does sometimes. Here, Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have... Give I thee, 
in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. I don't know if the guy says, yeah, sure. Peter took him by the right hand and pulls him up, lifts him up. Now, Peter's got to, Peter's got to know. He's got unction from the Holy Spirit, you know. Uh, I remember years ago, my pastor, Sunday morning, service, two people sitting in a wheelchair off to his right, and Chuck walked off the stage, and he grabbed the one. He said, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And he pulled him out of the wheelchair. I'm thinking, ah. And the guy gets up and starts crying, and he's walking, you know. And afterwards, somebody that said, Pastor, said, Chuck, why didn't you pull the other guy out? He said, the Lord didn't tell me to pull the other guy out. He said, oh, if I'd have pulled the other guy out, he'd have fallen on the floor, you know. Uh, you know, so so here's this, you know, he, he grabs this guy and pulls him up. He's got to know what the Lord's putting in his heart. And, and you look at this, you think, Lord Jesus, you know, how we long for this. Thomas Aquinas said to the Pope in his day that he was in a conversation with him, and the Pope said, isn't it sad that we can no longer say silver and gold, have I none? And Thomas Aquinas said, no. He said, what the shame is is we can never that we we can say rise up and walk that's the shame of it you know isn't wrong thing prosperous but he said it's not the first half that's a tragedy that we can no longer say silver and gold have i none the tragedy is he said to the pope we can't say rise up and walk peter and john they do that take him by the hand they lifted him up now look and immediately, I like it when those words are applied, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple. Listen, walking and leaping, jumping up and down and praising God. You have to understand what's going on here. This is a guy who has a congenital illness. He has never stood or walked in his entire life. Luke wonderfully uses medical terms here when he describes it. And when he says here he receives strength, it's a Greek word that speaks of bones going back into the sockets. Bones going back into the joints. Because this is a guy... You know, Jesus doesn't say, all right, we kind of patched you up. Now you need to go for 15 weeks of therapy. Pool therapy's good, you know. It just No, no. He, he, he speaks this miracle to his bones. They're, they're snap, crackling, and popping back into joint. Muscle tone is coming. Neuropathways that were non-existent all of a sudden are formed. The, the parts of the brain that interact with the coordination in the legs, all of a sudden that takes place. You have to understand what the picture is here. When Jesus heals somebody that's never walked, or when Jesus heals somebody that's never heard and it says they speak plainly, it takes years for a kid to learn an idiomatic language. Jesus imparts hearing and a language at the same time. It's a miracle. You know, somebody on the on the, the, the field that, that missionary surgeons get to that have been blind their whole life, when they do the surgery, when they take the bandages off, they don't see. 
because it takes a while to file vertical lines, horizontal lines, you know, diagonal lines, and it's a few weeks of them taking in data before they start. That's why when you have a baby, it takes a week or so before they finally look at you and smile. They see your face. They're probably thinking, this ain't what I hope to see, but this is better than what I've been seeing, you know. So this guy, it says he stands up. He receives strength. His, his, his immediately, it says, his bones are clicking back into the sockets where they hadn't been. And he, it says, leaping up, stood and walked. He had never done that in his life. Now, he could have gone anywhere in Jerusalem or Israel. He could have ran home to his parents. He could have gone to his uncle. He could have gone to somebody that was giving him a hard time and then went, nah, 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 nah. You know, he could have gone anywhere. Look what it says. Leaping, he stood up and walked, and he entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. You have to understand, it was the first time in his life he was ever in the temple. You were crippled, blind, lame. You were not permitted in the temple. He had laid outside the temple all of those years. For over 40 years, he had been crippled. Now, instantaneously, immediately, muscle tone and neuropathways and bones that could support him, clicking into joint and socket. Just imagine this. This guy jumps up, and he's jumping around, screaming hallelujah, praise the Lord, you know, with these guys walking into the temple praising God and it says and they knew it was he the people they knew it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple and they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him so they saw they knew they're filled with amazement because they know what's happened here. They understand what's taking place. And as the lame man, which was healed, held Peter and John, he ain't leaving go. All the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. No wonder the Lord hadn't healed him. The Lord had walked by him time and time again, because he was saving it for the opportune moment. You see, sometimes in my life, when I feel like the Lord isn't doing something I'm asking him to do, I kind of feel like, I don't know, Lord, I wouldn't treat my pastor this way if I was you. It's kind of, you know, bad for your rep here. People realize, you know, you know. And then isn't it always then on the other end of it when we can look back, we, we say, Lord, I'm sorry. I spoke foolishly. I can see now what you were doing. And you're so wise, you know, you're so wise. I encourage you guys, please be reading ahead. We're going to see Peter freshly filled with the Holy Spirit again as we move into the next chapter. Remarkable scenes here. Um, Certainly for you and I, look, great exhortation. Um, You're never going to really be pierced in your heart. Do you understand, understood? If you're here, you don't know Christ the one whom you pierced, he died for you in your place. You're never really going to say, what is it that I'm supposed to do until you realize what you've done and how you've sinned against a holy God and the price that's been paid for you to live. 
And when you can welcome the Word of God, when you can welcome it, take it, and make it your own, something wonderful begins to happen. And these guys are zealous. They're abiding in the Word of God, in fellowship, breaking of bread, prayers, the, the four main ingredients. Now, certainly other things took place, but these are the four, you know, kind of pillars that the, the Holy Spirit decides we should see. Now, he's going to tell us other stuff as we go through the book. But he says, apostolic church, first church, 3,000 in one day, here were the necessary ingredients for that church to flourish. So great for us to ask ourselves, again, am I abiding in the word? What does that mean? You keep a Bible in the lost and found, and when you come on Sunday, you take it out? No, no. Are you in the word every day? I love the Word. I'm bummed if something comes up and I can't be in the Word. You know? Because when I'm in the Word, He talks to me. I read for a little while. All of a sudden, there's tears in my eyes. The words right off the page. They rise off the page. And I know that sensation. So if I'm riding a car or something, and I know that same sensation, I say, Lord, this is you speaking to me. You know, the time in the Word is incredible. We should all do that. We need to ask ourselves a question. It's available. These people didn't have the Old and New Testaments. They weren't running around with a copy. They didn't have mobile devices with the Bible. Or, you know, it's just we have so much. It's available to us. Secondly, koinonia, the fellowship. Are we committed to fellowship? Are we, are we in a home fellowship? Are we regularly attending church? Are we serving one another? Are we, you know, doing, having things in common? Important stuff. Are we hospitable? Are we fellowshipping with other Christians? Are we breaking bread together? We take the Lord's sup, Supper with friends, with our kids, you know, in, in uh, home fellowships, different environments. Do you come when we have, you know, communion here? Are you coming? The Lord said, as often as you break this bread and drink this cup. He put the word often in there. There's a book that's called The Key of Knowledge. Coney Barra found it I think the first copy he found was from the 7th century. It may have been in Istanbul where he found it. I'm trying to remember. But it was written about the 3rd century church in the area of Armenia. And I read some scholar talking about it. And Judy was going all over trying to find it for me in bo old bookstores in England and Scotland. And I, they were kind of laughing. At I was like, hey, what are you really think you're going to find that? She found it in Target. A reprint, a paper, paperback version. But, you know, the interesting thing there is it says when they had communion, they had the n normal s church service. And when it was over, they prayed for about three hours, the congregation together, before they had the Lord's Supper. Now, I'm not saying we need to do that. I'm just saying, you know, it's interesting. You look at the commitment here in these early days and what went on. You know, are we coming when we have the Lord's Supper? Is that important to us? And and then, of course, prayers. If you're not in private prayer, you're not going to come to church on Sunday night. If you talk to the Savior, if you're talking to him, he's going to steer your ship. If you give him the steering wheel, he's going to tell you where to go and what to do and how to use your time and where he wants you to be. That's the adventure of Christianity to me. The most profound theology is a personal relationship with the risen Savior. You know, all the rest is fine. That's the center. That's the hub. That's the adventure of it all. So these things are there for us to look at this evening. Let's stand. Let's pray together. 
Let's lift our voices and our hearts to our Savior. Uh, Let's decide what we're going to do as individuals with the stuff he lays out there in front of us. Father, I know you've overheard, Lord, and I, I don't know, Lord, we just can't imagine what it's like for you to hear this 2,000 years after it happened, that we're here tonight in Philadelphia studying what happened on that Pentecost and looking at those things, Lord, and asking your Holy Spirit to make them real to us these thousands of years later. Lord, we do pray. Lord, our study in the book of Acts, our study in Revelation, the things that are being studied on Monday night and Tuesday, Lord, that you would use all of this, Lord, and you would draw us to a place where we would experience a fresh filling with your Holy Spirit, Lord, that it would affect how we love and give to one another, that your word would be precious to us, maybe in a way that it hasn't for years, maybe in a brand new way, But, Lord, it would rise off the page and it would speak to us and it would go deep into our being and divide between what is soulish and spiritual, that it would be effectual, that it would bring forth fruit that would sanctify our lives. And, Lord, we would find ourselves giving. We find ourselves breaking bread, remembering what you've done for us, Lord. We find ourselves, Lord, in prayer, Lord, in conversation with you and experiencing your presence, Lord, and pouring out our heart. And then we would come and do that publicly as well. Lord, we put these things before you. We believe we're praying according to your will, Lord Jesus. And we do pray in your name and, Lord, for your glory, receive this offering of praise that we lift to you now. We pray, Lord, in your name. Amen.